1: Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we're here as we do every weekday at four o'clock to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, questions about what we believe as Christians and why, questions about things that are going on in the world. You know, our world is changing so quickly that seems to be the, the bulk of the questions I'm getting via email now. Uh, we'll do the best we can to answer those questions. Uh, as directed by the Word of God, we want people to have clarity, and um, that's why I try to be as direct as I possibly can, and I trust you know that I'm being direct in love. Here is the phone number for your live calls and questions, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877 877- 630 kslr that's 630-5757. If you happen to be listening and you're one of the people that called yesterday uh, from out of this local area, even in Florida, we got a call here at the church today. That's the best way to call, 877-630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're local and driving in your car, the best way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio uh, at KSLR. So uh, lots of ways to get in. We'd love your calls and questions. Um, Hope you did. Hey, hope you got a chance. We don't have anything going on, so I'm going to get right to questions today. But I hope you got a chance. Uh, to listen to uh, our Sweet Summer devotions last night, or if you didn't, you can still do it uh, today. It's going to be on, uh, on our website. Uh, Becky did a great job. Um, yesterday we had a packed house. Uh, our online viewership was higher than it's ever been. Um, the Lord will speak to you. The Lord will, will really bless you through this. So that's available at CalvarySA.com. Okay, let me get right to the questions. Here is our first question from Drew. Uh, this is from our email inbox. Drew says, Pastor Anna, I was wondering. This is titled Hypothesis. I like that. He said, I was wondering if the Bible provides sense of how many people heed the call of salvation. The parable of the sower speaks about four types of hearts that hear or receive the gospel? Only the fertile heart, good ground, takes the seed, it grows and produces fruit. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is Jesus saying, on average, that one out of four people wind up truly saved, or 25%? During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks, about the narrow and broad gate in Matthew 7. Jesus used the words few with the narrow gate and many when he talks about the broad road to destruction. The use of those terms is not quantifiable, but as an engineer, the word few is typically used when describing approximately 25%. So am I crazy to think the Bible does give us an indication of how many folks wind up giving their life to Christ? Drew, Um, no, you're not crazy at all. Uh, the, 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 The difficulty here is that um, there are Christians who uh, in one of the parables uh, of the of the sower they, they receive the word with joy uh, but the cares and worries of this world choke it out there's no indication that that those people are not true Christians. So I, I think it's one of the things. We have to understand that that parable has nothing to do with salvation. That parable has only to do, uh, in, in terms of application with Christians, meaning that we are to sow. The The whole point of the parable is that we're to scatter the Word of God. We're to sow the seed on all kinds of soil indiscriminately and abundantly so. In other words, we're not supposed to guess what or who, but we, we're, we're just to scatter seed without regard to what kind of soil it's going to land on. A lot of times we think, oh, well, well they're not going to listen, or, or, well, this is somebody who's likely. Well, we don't know. So our job as Christians is just to sow the seed, the Word of God, and do so continually. For that reason, Drew, and only for that reason, uh, I don't think we can take Jesus's parable or, or uh, the parable of the sower literally. In the sense that one out of four, the seed's going to hit and they're going to get saved. I don't think that's the case. But the point as it relates to salvation is that uh, truly, relatively speaking, the few who will hear the word, receive it, and thus end up in heaven is few compared to the numbers that are going to go to destruction. And all we have to do is look around in the world that we live in, and we can see that very thing is true. Uh, It's just hard. It's getting harder and harder. People have to to reject this world. Um, They've got to accept Jesus Christ. And we see people um, with their hearts getting harder and harder and harder. And I'm telling you, Drew, for a pastor, this is the most heartbreaking thing. Of all you see people whose lives are a mess you see people who are who are making suicide attempts you see people uh, whose lives are, are in complete disarray, complete devastation and tell about Jesus and they still hold on to some false faint hope that somehow their life is going to get magically better and everything's going to be okay and it's just not true life is never okay apart from Jesus even if somebody tells you they're okay, The reason they're angry, the reason they're defiant, the reason they're combative is because they're not okay at all. And as Christians, that's what we've got to believe. So, Drew, I don't believe this is literal at all, uh, but I do believe that your assumption that few means exactly that, few, and it means that more people, by far, by far, are going to spend eternity in hell separated from God than will be in heaven. Thanks a lot. Let's go to line one and talk with Scott calling from Converse. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes, I had a question about Paul and Timothy. In Galatians mm-hmm. 5 3, um, it talks about how if one becomes circumcised, he'll be severed from Christ, cut off from Christ, not just fallen away from grace, but severed from Christ. So I'm assuming that means no longer a Christian, or never was a Christian, or however you want to phrase it. But then when he says that if you get circumcised, that you're severed from Christ, then in in Acts 16.3, he has Timothy circumcised. So I was just wondering how you would reconcile that, where in Galatians 5.3 he says you're severed from Christ if you're circumcised, and then Mm -hmm. in Acts 16.3 he has uh, Timothy
0: circumcised to avoid some of the issues with the Jewish people.
1: Yep, I can do that. Thank you very much, Uh, Scott. Two things: one, you can't separate the Galatians passage from the context. In Galatians chapter five, the entire context and purpose of the letter is that he is 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 resisting or fighting opposing uh, Judaizers, those who are telling the Christians in the Galatian churches that in order to really be a Christian, you can be a Christian. But you have to be circumcised. You have to celebrate the Jewish law. He will say, oh, foolish Galatians, what's happened to you? Who cut in on you? You were running. So in context, Galatians 5, Paul is saying, uh, I'm going to go back to verse 2 of Galatians 5. He says, mark my words. Um, uh, Let me go back to to verse 1. This is the summary of the letter. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is obligated to obey the whole law. Uh, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. So he's not talking about the physical act of circumcision. He's using circumcision as a symbol for being enslaved by the yoke of legalism or by the yoke of Judaism. And he's standing firm for the truth once for all delivered for the saints. So the, the, the physical circumcision in the book of Acts uh, is different than this Paul's whole point is resist those Judaizers, Judaizers who are trying to enslave you and instead of trying to justify yourself that's important um, he says in verse 4 instead of trying to justify yourself by doing those rituals we have to remember that we're justified by faith and faith alone so that's the passage in chapter 5 now Timothy is a great example Timothy's Mother was a Jewess, uh, his father was Greek, and, and Paul never would have had, uh, required Timothy to be circumcised, but here's what he does, because Timothy has been called to to minister with Paul, and Paul so desperately wanted to minister to Jews. He had Timothy circumcised so as not to cause an offense to Jews. Now, the idea here is very simple. Paul will say that uh, I become all things to all people in order that, that, that many might be saved. To the Jew, I became like a Jew. So he's approaching them on the basis of, of what is the best way to, to be heard. He's not compromising. He's not making any sort of compromise um, with Timothy or forcing Timothy to compromise. He's just saying that in order for your ministry to be effective, in order for you to fulfill your calling, we're going to remove this stumbling block, or we're going to remove this potential obstacle. Now, Scott, I want to put in a more contemporary culture uh, reference frame of us. Uh, this is a real story. Um, I, I know a man who uh, he was a Calvary Chapel pastor, and he was a, a, just an old-time hippie. I mean, just long hair, uh, hippie clothes, tie-dye stuff. Never wore shoes. This guy never wore shoes. And he became a pastor, opened a new Calvary Chapel in Southern California. And everybody was excited back then in the Jesus days. Uh, and, and everybody came. And, and his first Sunday, believe it or not, he had more than 500 people. And his mantra was, this is who I am. I'm never going to change. Well, that guy's church didn't last very long because he was willing to meet people where they are. You know, he could reach hippies, to be sure, but but you want hippies to grow up. You could uh, reach hippies, but don't you also want other people who are lost and separated from Christ to come to your church? And what would happen is people would come to his church. They'd be offended by his appearance. So so he was told, and by the way, he refused. He was told, well, remove those stumbling blocks. Just be normal. You know, you're not a hippie anymore. You're a Christian, and you're trying to reach people. And he held to his guns and, and uh, a couple of years later he didn't have a church at all. So it's very, very important to to understand that, that Paul is just telling Timothy, remove that potential obstacle. Does that help, Scott? Oop, I thought Scott was still on the air. 340, thank you, Scott. I appreciate the phone call. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox as well. Rich, Rich says, what practical advice would you give to parents who have adult children living at home in terms of preparing them to be in a position to leave the house? Rich, this is a huge, huge problem. And sometimes we parents think we're doing our children, our grown children a favor by allowing them to stay children too long. Remember, our job is to train them up in the ways of the Lord. Uh, to be responsible as adults. Now, I'm one of those guys who would have loved for my children to live with us forever. I love my boys. Now they're married to beautiful girls, and they've got children, giving us grandchildren. And, and I would love to have a place so big that we could all just live together. Paula, on the other hand, she had it right. She said, no, let's just get them a house in our neighborhood, <laughs> And, Paul, and, I've learned that the empty nest is a wonderful thing. So um, um, well, the practical advice would be to, to prepare them to live on their own, to prepare them, make sure they're working, make sure they're contributing. Uh, I had a friend of mine, a guy actually who worked for me, who the minute he turned 16 and got a job, his dad required him to pay rent. The very minute he turned 16 got a job, he had to pay rent. He stayed at home until he was 30 years old, and he got married, and on his wedding day, his dad handed him a check for all the money that he paid for him in rent. You see, he prepared him for the world. He prepared him to be responsible, to learn accountability, but he didn't care at all about the money that his son was giving him. What a wonderful wedding gift that was after all those years of accumulating that money. Well, he was preparing him. We need to prepare them. I also would say, Rich, practically, that if a child lives at your home, I don't care how old they are, and you're doing it for um, uh, to allow them to save money, you're doing it for whatever the reasons might be, they need to be responsible adults. Again, I said they had to work, but they also have to be responsible in terms of being good citizens and good tenants in your home. Even if you're not charging them rent, they're still there in your home your home belongs to Christ and what you've got to do is be responsible to to tell them that in this house these are the rules now here's something I think is really important Rich if you have an adult child at home that child if he lives in your house under your roof is going to go to church whether he or she is saved or not they're going to go to church that's a rule if you live in my house we go to church as a family on Sundays that's what we do That child is not going to be able to to drink, though the law gives them the freedom to drink. They're not going to drink in my house because it's Jesus' house. They're not going to watch things on TV where Jesus' name is taken in vain. They're not going to do those things because they understand, and we have to make them understand, that this is the way of life. Now, I've had kids say, well, that's not fair. You know, I'm grown up. I want the freedom to come and go. Well, then move out. Get your own place. If you can find cheaper rent, then go do it. But, of course, they can't. They want the best of both worlds. And we've got to teach them that there are demands that this world makes on them. And we have to prepare them to meet those demands. You know, a kid that won't work, a kid that sits around and plays video games all day, isn't going to keep a job very long, if at all. If he's on his own, he's going to get evicted from an apartment that he can't pay for, or a house that he can't pay for. We have to prepare him for those realities. So... It's Jesus' home. Um, They need to work. They need to contribute. They need to follow the rules. They need to do so joyfully. And when we can do that, Rich, I think what we'll have is very uh, responsible kids. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate it. Let's go to uh, Art calling on Line 1. Art, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Listen, um, I've been. Uh, struggling with something, and and uh, I have some pastors tell me one thing, and then
0: others tell me others. Um, is healing for today? I mean, because because the reason I'm asking is uh, is, is I've been lining my ducks right, and and
1: to to go out there, pass out tracks, and what have you. And uh, all of a sudden, I got sick. My kidneys went out, and then my eyesight, everything's like went downhill. And I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. You know, uh, uh, to be healed, and and it seems to be getting better. Yeah. Um, the way I feel is like like I wasn't meant for the ministry, so back off a little bit. You you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. My question is: is
0: He, I mean, can I be healed by prayer? Or yeah. I?
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, two two things. are I think that we we've, we've got to make a distinction here. The the divide here between churches is those who are more charismatic or health and wealth. You know, God promises to heal us that he doesn't want us to be sick. And that's really a nonsensical view when you understand uh, the context of Scripture. The Apostle Paul himself was afflicted mightily beyond anything that we can possibly understand. And in one particular case with his famous thorn in the flesh, he pleaded with God three times that it be taken away from him. And, and and three times the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient. So uh, healing, God does heal, but he doesn't heal on demand. And these are the kind of prayers where we have to say, Lord, thy will be done. Now, if I were you, Art, this is the way I would frame my prayers. Lord, I want to be healed. I want to go out and share your gospel, your glorious gospel with people. And I can't do it in this condition. So here's what I, I say, Lord, if you choose to heal me, I will use my new strength for your glory. I will use it to serve you. And then you can say, by faith, thy will, not my will, be done. Now, sometimes when that prayer isn't answered, and we don't know the will of God on these things, but if if anybody's telling you that it's always God's will to heal, that person is telling you a lie. So since we don't know the heart of God on these things, Art, what we have to do is be willing to accept his will and adapt to his will. Now let me give you an example. In your particular case, if you're not feeling well enough to go out and serve, uh, I promise you as many people are going to get saved by you praying for them as by you sharing with them. So God will use you and sort of refocus your direction, but you can be used anywhere. Uh, but but whether it's a sickbed or or whether you're on the streets actively and physically sharing Christ with people. So the desire that you have is good. Now, what you do is leave it up to the Lord and ask him to heal you. The Bible says with thanksgiving, you can make your request known to God. But it doesn't mean that God is simply going to heal because he owes it to you. Uh, the truth is we live in a fallen world. Our bodies give out and uh, we have to accept God's grace as sufficient, uh, whatever the answer is to those prayers. But no, God does not owe us healing. The atonement doesn't provide for healing. What What the atonement does is promise the healing from sin. Now, what we do then is walk with jesus no matter the condition we're in like the apostle paul sometimes god heals sometimes he doesn't you know the apostle paul is the only man i know who is raised from the dead and then told later by god that his grace was sufficient and i'm not going to heal you this time yeah. does that help yeah. yes sir it sure does it sure does thank you Art. thank you very much hey, Art, can i pray can i pray for you of course, yes. Okay. God God answers my prayers a lot. Jesus, I lift Art before you now and ask merciful God to touch him and heal. According to thy will, O oh God, he wants to use his strength to serve you. I'm asking you supernaturally to touch and heal his kidneys. Help him, whatever it is, Lord. We rest in your goodness and your love according to your will. Amen. Thank you, Art. Oh, I feel bad for people hurting. I have a greater empathy since my health issues. Let's go to Kaylee calling from Universal City. Kaylee, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
0: Hi, Pastor Ron.
1: Hi, Kaylee. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm doing really good now.
0: (laughs) Um, I was curious on your thoughts. With all the hundreds and thousands of different species of every kind of animal. Do you think more were created after the Flood, considering how many there are?
1: Um, Ooh, tough question. Kaylee, I don't think more were created after the Flood. I think when God uh, created all life Um, He did it perfectly in a pristine garden. I don't think things were ever any better than at that time. Now, Moses, I'm sorry, Noah, as you know, was told to take two of every animal, except for those that were going to be used as sacrifices, so they could reproduce. So all of the animals that Moses took on the ark, once they were I'm sorry, Noah, the, the, the animals that Noah took on the ark. Once they hit dry land, those animals scattered over the earth and repopulated. But that wouldn't give more more animals, uh, Kaylee. One of the other things to consider is that there was... Uh, animals that, that often go into extinction, that happens even today and so the animals that started out, we don't have all of those and I do believe that with crossbreeding and other things, obviously we have evidence that there has been uh, new species discovered and we're still discovering some unknown, perhaps new species of animals so I don't think there is more now than before, I just think it's different, I think it's, it's uh, uh, less, but still beautiful. Does that help you? Yes sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh uh-huh. bye-bye. 3409585 for your live calls and questions. We're inside 3 minutes for this part of the program. So let me go to a question here from Nacho from our email, email inbox. He says in 1 Samuel 15:33 did Samuel the prophet actually kill King Agag or would a soldier have actually done the the deed, the actual deed, would Leviticus 21.11 be the deciding factor because it points to the Hebrew word, muth, uh, which can mean to put someone to death. Um, not you, sure, I, don't, I don't think there's a connection there between Leviticus at, at all. Samuel uh, took the sword in his own hand, and, and to be very uh, dramatic here, the, the literal Hebrew is that he actually hacked Agag to death. Now, what's important about this, and I just did this in my Bible study, which I think this question springs from uh, last Wednesday. Um, Samuel, uh, a true man of God, did what Saul, who was supposed to be a man of God, refused to do. And that's, he, he was obedient. And, and Agag, who God intended for judgment, Samuel was actually the instrument through whom God judged this wicked king. And uh, he he would have stabbed him, he would have hacked him to death. It wasn't just an in and out kind of thing. Uh, He was pronouncing literally uh, God's judgment on this man, this man, Agag. So he wouldn't have had somebody else do it. It was a great picture of God saying, this is how a man of God behaves. He stands for me and with me. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll free, 877-630-5757. You're listening to the Word to Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes.
0: To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340 9585 or toll free 877 630 KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
1: Welcome back to the second half of the Tuesday edition of the program. 340-9585 Three uh, four zero ninety five eighty five for live calls and questions. Uh, before I get to Ralph's question, um, let me remind you, as I did at the top of the program, that uh, you can go to CalvarySA.com and listen to the Sweet Summer Devotion that Becky Alvarez did last night, and and you you may just get hooked a little bit. All of the Sweet Summer Devotions thus far, we've still got a few more weeks uh, to go, but all of the Sweet Summer Devotions are also there uh, online, and uh, and you will be blessed especially uh, listen to uh, um, Becky's from last night. You will truly, truly be blessed. Uh, Her and her family, um, to say they've been transformed is a gross understatement, and it's just been a wonderful, wonderful thing to watch. Here's a question from Ralph. He says, I know God is not insecure, because he can't be, but why is he a jealous God? Jealousy is not good. Ralph, this is one of the best things about God. He's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. You see, that's what we need to remember. He's jealous for you. And if you'll understand that, that means he's so jealous that he's going to make it hard for you to walk away from him, He's going to do everything he can short of forcing you. God gives us a choice, so we can't force. But he's going to do everything short of forcing you to make sure that you're in the place he wants you to be. So, jealous of you. You know the plans he has for you are so perfect. And any plan that we have, no matter how wonderful we think it is, it's nothing compared to God's plan. So he's jealous that we walk in his will. We walk in his plan. If we'll do that, then it's almost like he'll be smiling on us. We'll experience the smile of God. So, Ralph, God is not insecure. You're right. But he is jealous, not of you. He's jealous for you. I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from George. Um, I'm probably going to lose some... Friends here, George says, "What is your view on the bathroom issues that seem to be dividing our state? How can we as Christians build a bridge in this area?" George, two things, um, just real practically. Uh, I, you know, my position on on transgender issues has been clear. You are either biologically male or biologically female. And what you think or how you feel doesn't change who you are. And I've said often that we really need, if we're going to help people and truly love people um, and minister to them through these crises, we need to have them learn to accept the reality. Our chromosomes don't change. If somebody gets a sex change operation, the chromosomes, the DNA, none of it changes. We're still... um, the way God created us, no matter what we do to the body parts, it's no different than, than plastic surgery. You know, I could go to the to the plastic surgeon and get a big part of that, my huge nose cut off, uh, but but that nose was still who I was. And, and I could look different, but it doesn't make me any different. So it's important that we understand the best way to deal with people who are hurting, people who are confused, is to help them deal with by accepting reality instead of letting feelings or emotions govern the choices they make in life. Now, with regard to the bathroom issues, uh, I understand that there are people that don't want their children, um, most often we're talking about daughters, we don't want our daughters in a female bathroom and have a biological male come in. I understand that. I really do. I understand the emotion. I think it's silly that we have to have this conversation. Uh, I just think it's an amazing thing how quickly our world has changed to where now, what was clearly right just a couple of years ago, ten years ago, nobody would have even thought we could be here, but it was so clearly right, we also knew what was wrong. And now all of that's gone. Now having said that, your, your question, how can we build a bridge in this area? This is important. Now, a parent's job, I said this in my response to Richard's question earlier, a parent's job is to prepare their children for the world, not the world we want or the world that we cross our fingers and wish for, but the world that they're going to live in. And whether or not, as Christians, we like this, our world has changed. 2015, June... Gay marriage is now the law of the land. Equal rights for transgenders is now the law of the land. That genie's out of the bottle, we can't put it back in. And so what we need to do as Christian parents is to prepare our children for this world. Not an idyllic world but this world. And one of the things that we have to communicate is that the people who are hurting and who are confused without Christ, they need our help to find Him. And if our response is to get disgusted or to run, then we're never going to be able to reach those people. If I had girls, I, was, I raised two boys. And a biological male, and obviously biological male, came into the girl's bathroom. My children would be with me in a stall, private, protected. And when we walked out that bathroom stall, we would be kind to whoever was in there. We wouldn't run away like they have cooties, spiritual cooties. We'd be kind to them. We'd understand they're hurting. We have no idea what's going on in their lives to make them this way. But before we have a platform to say what you're doing is wrong and I have a better answer, we have to reach out in kindness and in love. Now, I wish I could say, if we just keep screaming, if we just keep fighting, if we keep electing Republicans then the world's going to change. We need to be realistic enough to understand that this world's not going to change. And isn't it true that the Apostle Paul, writing his final letter to his beloved Timothy, he said, as if to make a point, but mark this, Timothy, in the last days, in the end, things are going to get much, much worse. And he describes the type of world that we're going to be living in in the very last days. And that's the world that we're having hoisted upon us. So my view on the bathroom issue is it ought to be simple. There's a male and a female, but that ship has sailed. We're not compromising. We're not abandoning. What we're doing is understanding that God will have Christians to be light where there's darkness. And I think as American Christians, we've been so spoiled that we forgot how to be light and darkness. We'd rather shoo the darkness away instead of woo the darkness t- to Jesus. So, George, that's the best I can do. I, I Again, I wish I could say this is a silly issue. I was talking with Paula We recently came back from vacation uh, flying out of the San Diego airport. And if you've ever been to that airport, it is a crazy small place. That's uh, one of the most landlocked airports in in major cities in the world. And, And you're always, like, really close to everybody in there, and there's no room. But they found room to make transgender bathrooms. That's the world that we live in and we have to accept it if we don't prepare our kids for this world they're going to get eaten alive in it we can't shelter our kids but we can protect them by preparing them and who knows maybe what the Lord will do if he delays his coming is he'll raise up a generation of our kids who will be his voice with real love And George, what's going on in Austin? The yelling back and forth, the lines that are being drawn, the friendships, lifelong friendships in some cases that are being severed over this one issue doesn't sound at all like love. And a whole bunch of those politicians claim to belong to Jesus. And according to 1 Corinthians 13, because they're absent love, they're just making a lot of noise. Again, I wish we could say, let's just be sensible. But the world that we live in is way different. And to hope for anything different is to fool ourselves. So I hope, George, that answers your question. That's my position, and my position is no more valuable than anybody else's position at this point. These are questions that we're going to have to deal with uh, our children who we send to colleges, um, th- they better be ready or they're going to be overrun. It's that simple. Bobby writes in and says, Do I understand correctly that a pastor whose kids or even wife is not saved, that they should not be a pastor? Any longer, uh, Bobby? No, you. you, you yes and no. Let me let me get into the question. I think you're referring referring to First Timothy chapter three verses four and five, where Paul talking about the qualifications of a pastor says he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with the proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So I've had this question before. Uh, if a pastor has unsaved kids. Should that disqualify him from being a pastor? The answer is no. His kids, as they grow up past the age of accountability, they're responsible to God on their own. They have to make their own choice. No father can make his son or daughter believe. I wish we could, but we can't. But what he can do is manage his family in such a way that his children, even though they're unsaved, obey him and give him the respect he deserves as a father. And, uh, you know... Pastors whose children are unsaved are a source of great, great pain to the pastor and his wife, believe me, Uh, and yet only God, the Holy Spirit, can affect that. Transformation. So, the the question is: If now, if a pastor's children are are running all over the streets, if they're running roughshod in the church, if they're doing horrible things, and the pastor doesn't deal with it, well, then maybe he ought to step down and get his family in order. Uh, But uh, he can't make them be saved. Now, the other part of this, which I found interesting, you included uh, even his wife. There is no conceivable way that a pastor should be pastoring a church with an unsaved wife. No conceivable way. So if that man's wife is unsaved, um, he is in an unequally yoked relationship that mitigates against the possibility of even doing the job of being a pastor. So his house needs to be in order. His house needs to be a house that serves the Lord. And children, before they make the decision to become Christians, they need to honor and respect their father. But this idea of an unequally yoked marriage, Bobby, is is, uh, a a calling killer. Uh, Nobody who's married to an unbeliever would be called by God to be a pastor. A single man can be a pastor, no problem. Uh, But a, a man who's married to an unbeliever... Uh, There's still ways that that man can serve the Lord, to be sure. And he can still exercise the gift of teaching. Uh, But his teaching would probably take the direction of ministering to unequally yoked couples and the pain that they're going in simply by virtue of the fact that they're living with somebody that's not going to be in heaven with them. So I hope that answers your question. But please don't ever think that because the pastor's children aren't perfect that that disqualifies somebody from the role of being a pastor. You know, one of my friends who's got a whole bunch of kids, you know, his kids are always under constant scrutiny. And they put so much pressure on him. Well, you're the pastor's son or you're the pastor's daughter. You should know better. Kids are kids. And pastor's kids have flesh just like everybody else's kids. And we need to understand that. 340-9585. Three four zero ninety five eighty five here's a question from David, and I can do this in quick because we just had art call in on it. uh David asked, does jesus' atonement guarantee physical healing if we have enough faith? also is it God's will ever for a Christian to suffer um, it, it, david God's will for us to suffer? The answer is no, it's not his will but but we made that choice when we sinned. So uh, God's pristine creation was ruined at the fall and it's been deteriorating ever since. The truth of the matter is is that many genuine Christians suffer. Uh, Peter and Paul both in different phraseology talk about sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. We're never more like him than when we're sharing in his suffering. So yes, We suffer, we Christians. Does God wish the world was perfect again? Yes, but He's going to deliver us from suffering, not here in this world, but when He returns and sets the things in this world straight. But yes, it is a fact of life that people in this world suffer, both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unsaved. It's just an effect of the fall. Now, Jesus' atonement really does nothing with regard to physical healing at all. Jesus' atonement by His stripes or by His wounds we are healed depending on the translation that you're reading doesn't mean physical healing. Matthew tells us Peter tells us in the New Testament that this is a reference to healing us from the fatal disease of sin. So His healing doesn't guarantee nor provide for atonement however we're told in First Corinthians and Romans that there is the gift of healing, not a gift given to somebody to heal others, but gifts, plural, gift of healings. Um, and so when, for instance, I just prayed for art, if, if art uh, is healed, well, that's a gift of healing that God has given to art. And we've seen that gift used so many times over our years here at Calvary Chapel, um, literally hundreds of times we've seen people healed. At the same time, there are many, many more who didn't get healed, and God loves them all exactly the same. Don't listen, David, as I told Art, to anybody who tells you that it's never God's will for anybody to suffer. If we're suffering, it's a faith issue or a sin issue. That's simply not true. His son suffered. God's son suffered. All of his apostles suffered and died. That's a fact of the world that we live in. So, David, I hope that answers your question. There's an interesting question from Randy. Um, Randy says, Pastor Ron, do you think the apostles made a mistake by naming Matthias to replace Judas? It seems Paul had already been chosen by God. Um, Yeah, Paul had already been chosen by God, but do you see Saul of Tarsus didn't know it yet? And that calling in Acts chapter 9 is going to come a long time after Matthias was chosen. Now, here's the important thing to understand. And it always frustrates me when people say, well, no, Paul should have been the one to replace Judas. Uh, God always has his man at the time he needs him. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, not yet empowered by the Spirit, because chapter 2 hadn't happened... Peter appeals to the word of God and says his, does not the word say that, that his place shall be taken by another Judas had to be replaced and they had requirements they cast a lot which was a typical Jewish way a way that God honored um, a Jew's will or a Jew's desire to find the will of God uh, and God Proverbs says the, the lot is cast by God so it's not possible that they could have made a mistake it's not possible just because we don't know a lot about Matthias it's just incorrect to assume that he is uh, uh, he, he was the, the wrong choice um, you can't find some information about Matthias' his future ministry or his, his, his ministry in the future um, but but uh, uh, the Apostle Paul came later the Apostle Paul came later you know uh, in the uh, book of Revelation when the entirety of the churches represented, we see these 24 thrones. Uh, 12 representing the patriarchs of the Old Testament, 12 representing the apostles of Jesus. Uh, And they're all going to take their seat. And I've been asked, well, is Paul going to be in one of those seats? The answer is no. The answer is no. But we don't have to worry about Paul. You remember when John and James coerced their mother to coming to Jesus saying, My sons, can they have the places on your right and on your left when you come into the kingdom? And it was at that point when Jesus said, Those are not mine to give. They've already been given by my Father. And then he turned around and said, Can you drink the cup I'm drinking? They said, Yeah, we can. They couldn't, but that's not the point. The places, the seat on his right and the seat on his left are two very special places reserved in heaven. We know one of them is King David the Old Testament sees King David, Ezekiel calls him Israel's prince in the millennium. A seat on his other hand with all my heart I believe will be occupied by the Apostle Paul. The man that God used to a greater degree to change the history of this world than any man who's ever lived. The Apostle Paul. Can I make one more comment about Paul? If you want to know why God used him Read the first four verses of Romans chapter 9. We've been talking today about questions about the world that we live in, about approaching people in love and with kindness. Romans chapter 9 is where Paul says that if it were possible, he knows it's not, but if it were possible, he affirms it twice. The Holy Spirit affirmed it. He said, I'd give my place in heaven if all my brothers, the Jews, would be saved. Now think about that for a moment in terms of the depth of love that was required for Paul to truthfully say I would forfeit heaven for the people of God so I hope that answers your question Randy Matthias is the right one here's kind of a weird question from Sam Um, did Adam have a wife named Lilith before Eve Uh, No, he did not. Uh, Adam was the first person created by the finger of God. Uh, Eve was the next created out of Adam's side. Um, The only two people ever created by the direct finger of God. Uh, And this whole superstition regarding Lilith that she uh, didn't want to submit to her husband, Adam, uh, that she... Uh, had had sex with the devil, those kind of things. Um, uh, that's just nothing more than crazy superstition with no basis of fact whatsoever. So, Sam, uh, you're reading too much. Read your Bible. And if you read your Bible, you have all the information that you need. You don't need any more. So if somebody brings that up to you, just tell them, uh, I, I, in fact, don't tell them anything, ask them, well, why are you worried about Lilith? The, the problem is you and Jesus, so how can we talk about that? Hope that helps. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I don't know, how we doing on time, well, we're only inside three minutes, so I'll take another question that was sent in. Um, anonymous says, a man who is gay, but says he's a Christian, told me the word translated homosexual. Or laying with a man, depending on translation, is mistranslated. He says it does not mean all homosexual sex is wrong, but only that which is promiscuous. Of course, how can I answer him? The way to answer him, uh, anonymous, is to tell him to stop trying to um, justify his sin. He knows it's wrong. Uh, he doesn't understand Greek at all. The Greek word uh, translated "abusers themselves with other men" or "to lay with the men" or homosexual, depending on translation, is a word that's used only two places in the New Testament. It's used in First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. It's also used in First Timothy chapter one, uh, where uh, uh, a reference to homosexuality is clear. Now, I understand why people go this way. Well no, he just meant that a, uh, that a monogamous, uh, a faithful homosexual relationship is okay. It's just a coerced or a rape or, or uh, uh, promiscuous relationships or a temple prostitute remember, uh, relationships. Those are the relationships that Paul is condemning. That's simply not true. The word is two things: male and it to, to lay as in where we get our coitus from, where our English word is from. So I hope that helps. Let's very quickly go to Wesley. Wesley in Johnson City, we've got two minutes. Thanks for calling.
0: Uh, yeah, real quick. Uh, this grace message I've been hearing, I've been hearing it in a different fashion. Uh, it seems like every church that I've gone to, they've always, they've always added something to what God's already done. And uh, I heard a pastor say the other day that uh, there's no gray area, that if you're in wealth for sin, willful sin that you may not be saved, and uh, it's like, you know, we're not getting, uh, I'm getting bits and pieces and starting to reboot my brain to this works mentality coming from that, trying to get, uh, be good to get good, when I'm trying to compute in my mind the concept of grace and what God has done and that our sins are forgiven, and that's the power to save. And I'm thinking, you know, it just it's taken a while for it to reach the heart uh, to pro- to to proclaim that uh, truth.
1: Yeah. Well see we're anyway, we're inside a we're inside a minute let me give you uh, something and and I'll address this question because it's so important I'll address it at the top of tomorrow's program uh, if you'll be sure to be listening but let me give you an invitation go to calvaryessay.com and listen to the messages that I've been doing Romans chapter 6 and the first message in Romans chapter 7 I think there's four of them um, uh, at your leisure when you've got time uh, and we talk about this a great deal Uh, the Bible clearly says people who live in constant willful sin will not inherit the kingdom of God but that describes a lifestyle that doesn't describe the person who's struggling with his sin truth is uh, we all sin we all sin every day and my sins your sins Wes are forgiven and God wants you to enjoy grace there's nothing more important than learning to enjoy grace especially those messages in Romans 6 and I'll come back and deal with this question at the top of the program tomorrow hey thanks for calling hey good program a lot of calls may the Lord bless you and keep you Uh, Lord willing I'll be back tomorrow at 4